Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. There has been some anti-Semitism brewing for, um, well, the last few thousand years, to be honest, but um, it's kind of gotten more acute in the last several months. Um, Orthodox Jews have been getting attacked with more frequency um, in the last several years, but obviously the Kanye West comments that happened this past fall have kind of brought the anti-Semitism conversation to another level. And the truth is that I think there's something actually very good about this. There's something very good about anti-Semitism finally being talked about. Um, it's very good that Jews from across the spectrum are seeing it more than ever because it's not only an Orthodox problem. And even if it comes for the visibly dressed Jews first, um, anti-Semitism always ends up getting all Jews. Um, there's a topic that we touched on a few months ago uh, with someone named Dr. Joshua Carlip, who is the Denenberg Associate Professor of Jewish History and Associate Director for the Center for Israel Studies at the Shiva University. The last time we brought him on the show, we talked about how um, there's sort of this pattern of erasure that the non-Jewish world has asked Jews to do uh, really for a very long time, certainly since the Enlightenment, um, that we'll kind of get access to the non-Jewish world as long as we're willing to play down our Jewishness, um, which is sort of a strange dynamic in a world where other marginalized groups are celebrating what makes them different, leaning into their ethnicities. Jews continue to hide in many ways. Uh, but another thing that has kind of um, been on my mind is the idea of Jewish collaborators working with the enemy. It's a really painful topic, to be honest, because Jewish unity is so important. Um, and the work that we're doing now at Jew in the City, especially our Hollywood Bureau, we really are reaching across the aisle um, to Jews of all backgrounds, um, non-Jewish allies as well. You know, as many people as we can bring into the conversation, the better. Um, but there is, there are some Jews that um, have always thrown Jews under the bus um, and continue to do it to this day. This got sort of on my mind after the dozen um, exposés from the New York Times on the Hasidic community. In three months, three months, 12 articles um, were written about the Hasidic community. Now, we have a branch at Jew in the City called Tikkun, um, which works on healing systemic issues from behind the scenes within this community. Uh, the feedback from uh, this branch came from our Mako members who have seen the underbelly of this community. So I don't mean to say that issues don't exist because we recognize that they do. Um, at the same time, I don't think that this type of negative attention in a period when this community is already literally punching bags on the street is any way a helpful or positive thing. If anything, this type of public attack um, makes you know community leaders kind of uh, you know circle the wagons, um, and it puts Jews in literal danger. Um, and these articles were written by Jews. All of them were written by Jews. Another thing that just came out this past week is called "You People." Um, it is a horribly anti-Semitic movie that is sort of packaged uh, with humor in order to kind of distract from the fact that it is anti-Semitic on so many levels and is co-written and starred by a Jew named Jonah Hill. And so this is also giving cover to the movie um, and having people say, but how could it be anti-Semitic? A Jew did it. Um, and so uh, we're bringing Dr. Carlip to talk to us today about 
what are the patterns throughout Jewish history of where we've seen Jews collaborating with anti-Semites before? Um, because the more that we understand our past, um, the more we'll understand our present. So uh, Dr. Carl, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Allison. It's really great to be back with you. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I just gave like a, a good introduction as to why people should learn their history. So I hope that helps your profession more. Um, so yeah, if you could start back, I mean, you know, we were kind of chatting about this earlier and obviously, you know, Jewish history professors uh, specialize in certain periods of time. Um, and so, you know, definitely take the, the time that is your specialty, you know, with the most uh, in-depth piece. But I think there's certainly a pattern that we've seen starting from the very beginning, starting from the Torah, we were talking about um, collaborators, right? So if you could kind of just lead us in, what are some of the earliest examples of uh, Jews, you know, kind of taking the Jewish people down from within? Right, so here I'm talking, when I can talk about the Parsha, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking as a historian, I'm talking as, as a religious Jew, as a committed Jew, and we all know we're now in going into Parsha Bishalach. so a few weeks ago in Parsha Shemot, um, there's that scene when, Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, when Moses, um, he uh, strikes down the, the Egyptian who was brutally uh, beating a, a Jewish slave, and uh, you know, an, Isra uh, an Israelite slave. And then he goes out and um, he goes out and he sees two Jews fighting. And he says, you know, why are you hitting each other? And one turns to him and says, what are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Um, and at that point, Moses has to run away, you know, and, and he understands and our, our tradition um, identifies, you know, the Midrash, our rabbis identify these two fighters as Datan Va'aviram, you know, who the big troublemakers. Um, and they were, the, according to Chazal, they were informants, you know, they were informants to, to, to Pharaoh, you know. So, you know, our tradition understands, you know, that there were um, Jews, as you said, who throw other Jews under the bus um, for immediate or for long-term gratification from the very beginning. Okay, so, all right, so that puts us back 3,000 plus years. Yep. Uh, when's the next time that we see something like this come up? Well, I mean, in a sense, it's ongoing, but, you know, the, the most obvious example is the Hanukkah story, you know, and the story of the Hellenizers um, in the time of um, Antiochus um, and, uh, we know, for instance, um, you know, we, we know, for instance, about the, um, you know, it was actually the Hellenist leaders, people like Menelaus, um, who um, introduced, you know, the, uh, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, the, the nude Olympics for the Kohanim, and um, they even tried to hide their circumcisions, you know, and, you know, and, and things like that. And, you know, it was actually, um, it was actually more of a civil war. You know, the story of Hanukkah is more of a civil war um, with the Hellenizers and the Mityavnim um, going and, and goading, you know, the Antiochus um, to enforce Hellenization on these rec rec recalcitrant uh, um, Jews who refused to go along than it was, you know, just an outward persecution. You know, and, you know, and of course, no historical events are exactly the like, but there are many, many, um, similarities throughout Jewish history. Um, anything in the Purim story? Anything there? I'm just like going through Jewish history in my mind right now. Um, not the only thing I can think offhand, but not, I mean, you know, I don't, you know, the only thing I can think offhand is, um, you know, the famous Pasuk in, in Bigilat Esther towards the beginning, 
you know, that the uh, the drinking was according to the law, there was no forcing, you know, and the rabbis, again, interpret this to mean that the Jews willingly, you know, participated in Akashverish's uh, party, you know, they deliberately, he was willing to provide them, you know, it says, you know, means, you know, the, the Midrash says it was kosher wine, they, they weren't forced to drink, but, you know, the idea was, of course, to, you know, bring them, um, you know, bring them to acculturate them and to, uh, you know, erase boundaries, um, which, you know, led, you know, in motion to, to, to uh, you know, what eventually did. That's the only hint, you know, that I can think of, but there may be, there may be others. And our last topic was about Jewish erasure. So um, it's kind of, you know, similar to look at these sort of side by side. I We didn't talk about this before because we did kind of have an overview of where this conversation would go, but um, I'm thinking of Hamsa Obar Hamsa. Is that something that what you were going to say if I didn't mention that now? Is that the next one on your list? Um, yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, you know, there, there are more things along the way that it was, you know, and again, I would have you, uh, you know, suggest uh, that you speak to one of my colleagues who's an expert in, in uh, the Bai Cheney, the, you know, ancient period, um, who could really get into this. But yeah. we know that, again, it was, it was the Jews and it was the Jewish leadership that, that got, that invited Rome, you know, that invited Rome into Judea, you know, and, and we know, you know, what, or, or invited at least Rome to, to take sides, you know, in, in an internal dispute. And right. we know what the results of that were. And, you know, one thing, you know, I'll just, you know, as I say, on the one hand, the historian in me says, you know, no two, two events are alike, but, you know, William Faulkner did say the past, you know, isn't, uh, isn't dead. It's not even the past. Right. And, um, Jews tend to have debates amongst themselves and include the outside world, um, making themselves oblivious. You know, I'm not saying they are oblivious, but they 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 make themselves oblivious or feign being oblivious to the fact that that our enemies are standing on the sideline and rejoicing. You know, um, you know what's going on now, for instance. Uh, um, some of the vitriolic things that, you know, I'm not taking any sides in this current debate in Israel about, let's say, the you know, the Supreme Court and things like that. But some of the vitriolic things that are being said by opponents about, you know, um, you know, the end of democracy in Israel, it's like, you know, Israel's enemies, both, you know, Jewish and non-Jewish are standing by and clapping, you know, and, and the people who are saying this um, are not talking in a vacuum, but they are acting as if this is an internal these are internal debates and internal quotes when in fact their enemies are listening and rejoicing. Mm. Mm. I'm just, I want to just clarify also the Kamsa Bar Kamsa story. So yes, Jews invited Rome in, but then in that particular story, because this individual felt slighted at a party, just right. clarify to those who don't know the story from the Talmud, uh, two guests were invited to a party with similar names. One was not meant to be invited because he was the enemy of the host, but he got invited because his name was similar. Um, he was told to leave and was very embarrassed and offered to pay for his meal. Then he offered to pay for a lot of meals in the entire party. And the host uh, still threw him out um, in front of the rabbis, which were told that, you know, the leaders of the generation um, saw this embarrassment occurring, didn't do anything, which is another message we can glean from that. But um, he actually set the Jewish people up when um, they offered a, a, an offering to Rome um, 
oh sorry when they he had Rome bring uh, an offering to the Jews to the temple to be sacrificed um, he slit the tongue uh, to yep. make the offering wouldn't be kosher that it will be rejected and and he told them that they were going to rebel against you my proof is that they won't accept your offering mm-hmm. uh, because the tongue was slit it was not kosher for sacrifice um, and so he set up the Jews sort of as an act of revenge, um, which I guess like then leads me to a question and we can kind of keep on going through uh, history. What's the motivation? You said some of it is for self-preservation, but it seems like sometimes it's for revenge. It seems like what do you? Yes. Look, I mean, I'm not a, I'm a historian, not a psychologist, you know, but but I would say that, yeah, I mean, you know, how many of the people. Um, Allison, I mean, you know, the people that um, you have been combating, you know, in the press, um, on Netflix, you know, it's an issue of that they have personal issues with their own upbringing, with their with their families, right? And they are um, demonizing an entire community as a result. So, yeah. I, right. I do just want to insert for a moment here, sort of that um, push and pull of the rabbi seeing something very bad happened, public humiliation happened, which we're told is like worse than murder and staying silent. Um, I do think that we have a very strong responsibility as religious Jews to speak up when we see atrocities happening in our midst, uh, to not cover up, to, you know, uh, protect the vulnerable, uh, to, you know, not stand idly by our neighbor's blood as the Torah commands. Um, So, there is that very grave responsibility to take these uh, laws seriously. Um, at the same time, um, even if someone did do abuse or did cover up abuse, that's certainly not the entire Jewish community. And when these stories of pain are then shared with the media, and I think there's actually a similarity. I compared actually Julia Hart. Um, I think that she went through some sort of abuse. I think that there was cover up. And I wrote about it comparing it to the Kamsa Ubar Kamsa story because it was taking place right around Tishabov when this story is retold. Um, you end up, you know, taking down the entire Jewish people. We're still in exile. Um, and so, you know, it kind of has two messages the message on the insiders of the community to speak up and, you know, make sure to live in a way that, you know, where you're pursuing justice, but then a, a word on the people that may have been hurt by Jewish people. Um, there's lots of us, most of us are innocent um, and it becomes dangerous for all of us, including you um, to, you know, lash out and take the whole community down. Right, no, hundred percent. And I think that, I think this is also a key. Um, and then I'd like to, you know, let's move to the, some of the periods that I can talk more of, with more authority, authority as a historian. Um, who's your audience, right? Who's your audience, right? When the rabbis, you know, had definitely, re- um, somebody one time said to me that um, I'm, bl- I'm blaming um, um, Jewish self-introspection or looking, you know, for anti-Semitism, you know, Jews looking at their faults. And I'm not doing that. You know, um, Judaism, you know, an, an essential element of Judaism is cheshbon hanefesh, tshuva, right? But when you see these messages in Chazal, you know, in, you know, in, in what rabbis say throughout the generations, this is a message directed towards their fellow Jews internally within the Jewish community motivated from love. You know, if you have a message, you know, and I said this about the person that I wrote this article, um, you know, who, who was demonizing orthodoxy, someone in academia, um, and somebody somebody responded, well, you know, he himself is observant and he's, 
you know, it's motivated, it's motivated by, by caring. So my response is if it's motivated by caring, do it within the community. Once you publish in tablet, once you publish, you know, in, uh, in, uh, you know, in, 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 in uh, publications that everyone reads, you know, then it's an external thing. And then, uh, and also, you know, it's also how you say it and what you say, but you know, it's also where you publish. If you're publishing it deliberately so the outside community can cheer you on and your and that community can be more um, stigmatized, you know, then that's not motivated from love. Yeah, so I actually just wrote an article about um, with rising anti-Semitism on one hand, and also understanding real systemic issues that have to be dealt with within the community. On the other hand, I think there is a grave responsibility of orthodox publications to give space to continue to talk about what is going wrong and how we can work to fix it, um, because those issues should be talked about. We are a community that, um, you know, like you said, does uh, a, a calculation of the soul, a reflection of the soul every day as a value. Um, yeah ongoing idea of chuva of repentance. So those conversations certainly need to happen. They need to happen with leadership. It needs to happen on a communal level. And also taking those conversations to too big of a place um, could could mean life and death uh, a situation for, for Jews. Uh, I just wanted to um, say one more thing before we jump to the other things. And that is, I think that ironically, these, um, these harsh critics of, of orthodoxy and of Israel and in America, a lot of times they're linked because these are two groups that that you know that stubbornly refuse to give up their thick Jewish identities. Um, what they need to learn, ironically, is the lesson from um, many Haredi rabbis who opposed the creation of the state of Israel in 1948, but with the exception of the Satmar Rebbe, um, after the state was created, said. You know, whatever our criticism is, it's an internal one, and um, we can't do anything to delegitimize Israel because we're putting millions of Jews at risk. So I saw a beautiful quote from Rav Hankin, you know, it was a great, um, you know, post-safe within the right-wing Orthodox Lithuanian, you know, Jewish world in, in New York earlier in the, in the 20th century, and he wrote in the 1950s, I didn't even agree with, uh, with um, Agudat Yisrael's decision to sign the Declaration of Independence in 48. But now that the state was created, anyone who puts it at risk, anyone who goes to the non-Jewish world and joins in the war against Israel is a rodaf, right? Is, is someone who's putting the lives of millions of Jews at stake, you know? And would that the critics of it, the, the Jewish critics of Israel today um, adopt that attitude? I know, and the, I guess the other thing that I'm wondering, is it just, um, does some of it come from, we said, self-preservation, um, you know, the need to be spiteful and maybe um, not realizing how dangerous it is, how much Jew hatred there is and has always been, um, and how um, sort of any opening to create more animosity towards the community um, could have such seriously negative ramifications on, on so many innocent people. I think it's um, a certain lack of, um, just like maybe not thinking through, um, you know, kind of what the end result will be of, um, you know, kind of going off onto an article or social media to complain that there are real ramifications, um, life and death ones uh, for the community. For some people, it's like that. I wish it, I wish I could think that that's the case for so many. For many, I think it's more sinister. For many, I think that, you know, it's when, when a person, when a Jew today 
um, demonizes Israel or demonizes the Orthodox community in a public forum, they are consciously joining the many against the few, right? And they are consciously joining a community that will um, cheer them as a good Jew, you know, for joining their side. Um, and um, they know that despite all the protests, and they will say the, uh, the Zionists are trying to, to silence us and the Orthodox, they know deep down that these are communities that, you know, just want to live in peace and just want not to have all this hostility. So therefore there's very little those communities are gonna, or if anything, that those communities can do to them um, back. You know, and so um, think about in the medieval period, you know, because we, we talked going through history, um, there was always a steady stream in every generation of Jews in Christian lands who converted to Christianity, right? And, you know, think about it. They're surrounded by this sea of hostility, right? And telling them that they murdered their God, right? That they murdered Jesus, that they are... Um, basically the devil incarnate, um, accusing them of every horrific crime um, that you know, anyone could, even, could not even imagine. And it's only natural that there's gonna be some people in every generation who take it to heart, right? And internalize, internalize the critique, internalize the hatred, or simply just wanna run away to, the, to this and have safety with the oppressor rather than be part of the oppressed. And so therefore, and then they become in turn the biggest, uh, um, mouthpieces, right, of anti-Semitism, anti-Judaism. So, you know, the uh, the uh, disputation, the Paris disputation, twelve forty-two. Who was um, who was it? It was it was uh, Nicholas Donin, a Jewish convert to Christianity. Who was it in twelve in the twelve sixties? It was with against Ramban. It was Pablo Cristiani, also a convert, right? And right through the line, right through the line. Now, I wanted to, I want to get to say a few words about German Jewry, you know, um, in the modern era, because that's when this really developed the form that it has to this day. Um, German Jews were told from the beginning, you know, in starting in the late 18th century, um, if you want emancipation, if you want um, emancipation as citizens, um, you need to regenerate. It was called it was a quid pro quo rights for regeneration. Um, you Jews are degenerate. You speak this uh, this uh, this uh, degenerate German, you know, Yiddish. Um, you uh, are moneylenders. You're peddlers. You cheat. You dread. You're you're ugly. You're dirty. You live in these dank ghettos. Get yourself educated. Get yourself, uh, you know, look European. Speak like a proper European, and then maybe we'll give you your rights. And uh, German Jewry, um, you know, as a whole really imbibed this, you know, from the leaders down. It really starts with the Haskalah with Moses Mendelssohn. I have a couple quotes for you. Um, Moses Mendelssohn, who in other ways, you know, defended the Jewish community. I'm not trying to uh, um, make this too one dimensional. Um, this is what he had to say about Yiddish, which he himself grew up speaking. Quote, this jargon has contributed not little to the immorality of the common man, I mean, amongst the Jews, right? Um, but speaking German would lead to morality. Heinrich Gretz, the great uh, German Jewish historian of the 19th century, who also in other venues defended the Jews, 
hated Polish Jews, hated the Ostjuden, right? Um, this is what he said about, um, about Polish Jews. Um, he said, um, and I, I have a quote here, and I'll just read you the, uh, he basically blamed them, he blamed the Polish Jews for um, coming to Germany, um, serving as the rabbis in the Malamdim who taught the youth. And he said, um, he said about them, um, to their care or rather to their neglect were entrusted the Jewish youth who as soon as they could talk were introduced to the Talmud after the sophistical artificial method through the, this perversity, the language of the German Jews, like that of the Poles, degenerated into a repulsive stammer. And their manner of thinking and love of disputation into crabbed dogmatism that defied all logic. Yes. So, you know, this, oh, okay, this, uh, this kind of hatred, it didn't originate with the German Jews, you know, with Mendelssohn. It originated with the um, German non-Jewish anti-Semites, but it was internalized by the leadership, the Haskalah, and then it penetrated. And German Jews believed that they have to rid themselves of these characteristics. Mm -hmm. And so there's a wonderful book called Brothers and Strangers, the East European Jew and German and German Jewish consciousness by Stephen Ashheim, a retired professor at Hebrew University, where he talks about this process where first they, the German Jew felt they had to rid themselves of the ghetto within themselves. But then they put all those negative character traits onto the Ostjuden, you know, onto the East European Jews, mm -hmm. and, you know, hated the East European Jews, right, um, for their um, thick Jewish identity, right, through their Yiddish, through their, their clothing, uh, for, you know, everything. Um, and when anti-Semitism increased, even though the German Jews were um, acculturating, even though the majority of them became reformed, et cetera, et cetera, um, many German Jews blamed that on the presence of the Ostjuden, right? Mm -hmm. And literally out of the, um, the New York Times articles today, it's such a similar dynamic. It, it's such a similar dynamic. And I think one chilling conclusion that Ashheim gives in his book is that in the early 1920s, um, the Ostjuden were being attacked on the streets of, of Berlin, on the streets of Germany. And basically all the anti-Semitism was being unleashed on these Ostjuden. And many of the native German Jews were saying, well, you know, what do you expect? We have to limit immigration. We have to, you know, make sure they don't come here and bother us too much. 20 years later, you know, less than 20 years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, you know, in the 1930s, um, it was all German Jews, you know, so it starts with the most visible Jews, it starts with the Ostjuden, you know, who today's um, grandchildren are the Hasidim in Williamsburg, right, but, but it eventually, it comes to all of us, you know, and I think that's the lesson we need to remember. We have uh, about two minutes left, but I don't want to miss Russia because there's also a dynamic on Russia, uh, Russian Jews that, um, you know, kind of collaborated with the enemy. Uh, so can you tell us a little about the, the Russian story? Yeah, um, well, you know, it starts a little bit in the 19th century when uh, Maskilim imbibed this message from the German Maskilim, petitioned the Tsarist government to ban traditional Jewish clothing. Um, in the Pale of Settlement, 
And then, by the way, they write at the end of their letter, Dear Zar, please don't reveal our names to the rabbis. You know, so they're playing a double game. You know, they themselves are wearing, you know, the clothing when um, until, you know, and pretending to be part of the community, but they're really, um, you know, bad-mouthing the community. Um, and then, of course, how did it play itself out? Um, Russian police, czarist Russian police would throw Jewish men down on the street and shave their beards and pay us. They would um, pull the tichel off of, off of women, um, et cetera. Um, this had, the, the offshoot of this was in, during the communist era, you know, when the Yevsektia, the Jewish sections of the communist party um, were much more zealous than the Soviet government in shutting down, they shut down thousands of chadarim, thousands of traditional Jewish schools, yeshivot, um, thousands of synagogues. They, um, they reported people who had brit milah and they were thrown in prison. And this was all done um, by Jews against Jews. And so therefore um, they could insul this insulated the government, you know, the Soviet regime against charges of anti-Semitism, right? Just as the same way today, when sometimes the harshest critics of Israel will be, um, Jews will be former Israelis, right, et cetera. Um, and then they'll say, you know, and then we'll, uh, and then I'll write an op-ed saying they're using classic anti-Semitic um, argumentation, and their response will be this outrage, you know, how could you say we're anti-Semitic, you know, we're Jewish, you know, so, so it's the same process. Calling out this movie, You People, the response that I'm getting is, but it was co-written and started by a Jew. We're out of time. I don't think we actually have an answer um, to how to solve this, but I think it is important that we recognize that anti-Semitism can come with, from within. We have to be alert. We have to not be afraid to call it out. We need to be able to explain the pattern that this has existed for a very long time and it leads to danger towards Jews. Uh, Professor Carlo, thank you so much for elucidating the past for our listeners. Um, and hopefully it will give us some more insights for the future. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Allison, and I really appreciate all your work. Thanks so much, and thanks for listening. You can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.